Bible reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 14, which can be found um, on page 721 in the Pew Bible. Isaiah chapter 58. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is, that, is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe him, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with a pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will, be, you will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. Well, friends, um, if you keep your Bibles open to Isaiah 58, that will help. We'll work our way through this passage. And for those of you who are new with us, visiting us, 
On the inside of the bulletin, you'll find the outline of the sermon. You might find that useful. Of course, each week when we come to the Word of God, we expect God to speak to us, and God's Word is always powerful, always changes lives, and so we come now expecting that God might do that in us now. So let's once again join in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we once again sit under your Word and reflect on these words in Isaiah 58, that we would expect you to change our hearts Help us to live rightly and respond rightly to who you are and what you've done for us and what you call us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last night, my family, we did something we don't normally do at all. We did something very cultured. I'm not a very cultured person. I, I had to learn to grow to appreciate the arts. But last night, as a family, we went to a school play at PLC. And the play was Jane Eyre. Now, I didn't know it was a play. I thought it was a musical. So that's how cultured I am. And I didn't even know that it was a love story. I thought it was something more interesting, but that's how cultured I am. (laughs) And it was just interesting sitting there in the play with the family next to me, uh, two boys, Esther Yvonne. And I was watching the play, but I was also watching my boys and One of my boys, who shall remain nameless, it was like torture for him. He couldn't bear it. He was looking at his shoe, was trying to do something else, and he was distracting everyone around him. It was funny because it reminded me of myself when I was younger. But I wasn't going to watch a romantic play and not milk it for some illustrations, so here they are. Well, this story, the story of Jane Eyre, was set in the 1700s in England. And in this story, well, I've only got one illustration, so here it is. There is this one character, and he was a minister by the name of Reverend Brocklehurst. Now, some of you may know this story, read off the novel, uh, saw the movie. Well, he's a minister. And so a minister, you expect him to be of noble standing, of respect amongst the community. And he was, it seemed. He also ran a school, a school for the poor and orphaned girls. So you expect on the surface, this guy, he's impressive. He's doing something that is good, respected by the community. But of course, in this story, he's he's a threatening character, an abusive character, a mean-hearted character. At the school, he would feed the girls measly, measly meals, rations, whereas, of course, his own wife and daughters, they would live in luxury. A minister of God, living a life that way, not really caring for the poor and the orphan, but he was meant to, but yet living quite a different lifestyle himself. What do you call that? A person like that. Two-faced, wouldn't you? A hypocrite. It was hypocrisy. Now, of course, that was just a play. That's just a story, a novel. But last week, I was talking to someone else who was speaking of someone in their extended family who's also a minister of the Word of God in a different land, in, in uh, another country. But this minister confessed he didn't believe in God at all. How is that possible? Being a minister of God, but yet not believing God. And so what do you call that? Two-faced. Hypocrisy. And we know what that's like, don't we? Hypocrisy. To be two-faced. The face says one thing, 
but the hand does another. In, in public, one life. In private, quite another. Well, this past week, I, it was quite a busy week, I went along to an interfaith forum at our town hall in Box Hill. It was a forum with many different faith leaders in our community, and it was a forum about domestic violence. Now, how does that happen? How does domestic violence happen? Well, we heard a story of a lady who, who is a migrant, came over with a family as a migrant, grew up going to a church. She shared the story of her father amongst the community before friends and family respected, honourable, but at home, behind closed doors, he was beating his wife. What do you call that? Hypocrisy. Two-faced. The appearance of being religious, but the heart shows nothing of it at all. And so my question for us this morning is, is, is not just to talk about hypocrisy, but for us to individually consider what are we really like? What are we all really like? Is our Sunday church life the same as our home private life? Is our public life the same as our private personal life? When we speak of the love of God, does it overflow to love for others? And so, my question for all of us this morning is, what are we really like? You see, it's a deep and personal and confronting question and it might at least make some of us at least a tad uncomfortable and so what are we really like before God because whatever we are like however we live and we all find this deeply uncomfortable God will expose us that's what we see in our passage God will expose us. God exposes superficial religion. He'll have none of it. I mean, you cannot hide from God. He's the Lord of the universe. Where in the corners of the universe can you hide from God? You can't. You just can't. He's above us. He's beyond us. He made us. He owns us. And so for anyone to think, especially Christians, for anyone to think that we can fool God by our religious duties by our religious commitments our religious activities our religious ceremonies by our fastings by our observations we're just kidding ourselves we're not kidding God we can't fool him and that was what the people of God were doing here in Isaiah 58 and God was not happy he will have none of it and he will expose it have a look at verse 1 with me God calls his prophet to say, Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare it to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. You see, God was exposing them. Your religion, it's fake. It's a fraud. You have the appearance of loving God, the appearance of justice. You show some concern. That's what they're claiming anyway. Look at verse 2. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. You see, they were saying all the right things with their lips. 
impressing God. We are for you, God. We want your justice, God. Impressing all those around them. They even fast. But of course, we know their hearts were far from God. But yet, do you see what they did next? They even had the audacity to complain to God. They even had the audacity to get angry with God. I mean, what's the point of fasting God when you're not even going to listen to us? What's the point of starving from food when you won't even reward us? You see, they're angry with God. You see their complaint. Look at verse 3 now. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? You see, they weren't fasting for the right reasons at all. They weren't fasting to, what's that for? To express sorrow, remorse, to express a deep repentance. I'm turning away and I'm turning back to God. It was like what the city of Nineveh did when Jonah went to preach to it. The city repented, they fasted. It was what the apostle Paul did when Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, appeared to him and confronted him. He fasted. He was remorseful. He repented. Or fasting, nor did they fast to express their spiritual bankruptcy. On one day a year, the Jewish people, on the Day of Atonement, they were meant to fast. They were meant to fast on that day and to reflect on their sins and their dependence upon God. Instead, why were they fasting? They were doing their religious duties, getting on the task of being religious, being seen to be religious, and expecting a reward for it. And so what do you call that? Hypocrisy. Two-faced. They did it for show, just for self-interest. Now when you reflect on that character, and when you reflect on that attitude, it's not really unique to them, is it? It's not just their problem. I mean, do we hear today Christians who say, or at least think, and could it be even us, God, what's the point of going to church? I don't see any benefits at all. I mean, my friends seem to go quite well in life. They don't seem to suffer as much as me. They don't go to church. What's the point of going to church, God? Well, God, what's the point of giving to the work of the gospel. I mean, it doesn't seem like you're blessing me anymore. What's the point, God? Well, God, what's the point of praying or reading the Bible or participating in the Lord's Supper or serving when it seems like you don't even notice me, God? What's the point? That would be the wrong motivation. Now, do we hear Christians say that today or even think it? You see, if we think we can give something to God and expect that God will give us something in return, we are deluding ourselves. If we think that God needs our ceremonies, our religious duties and commitments, we're deluding ourselves. This is the God of the universe. God needs nothing from us. He does not need us. He's independent of us. He's transcendent. We are dependent on him, not the other way around. It's not like God is up there in heaven at the moment and he's just dead bored and he's waiting for every Sunday for Christians to gather together in the church to turn on their organ and sing hymns and that just lifts up his, his heart. No, God is not bored and he does not need us. Rather, we need God. We are dependent upon him. 
And so here we see God exposes superficial religion. You cannot fake it with God. If it's all appearances and no substance, if it's all show and no heart, if it's all lip service and no love, God sees it and God does not like it. And so my question again, what are we really like? Well, God exposes superficial religion because God expects sincerity of heart. What God wants is a heart that is changed, transformed by his love for us, not a religion that is empty. I mean, what's the point of fasting when the next minute you're fighting? What's the point of going to church when the next minute you're hating? And so look at verses, verse 3 and 4. Verse 3, yet on the day of your fasting... You see, on the day you're fasting, on the day when you're meant to be in sorrow, reflecting on your sins, showing your dependence upon God, aligning your heart to God, what do you do? We read, you do as you please, and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife, and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. You see, God makes this very, very clear, doesn't he? God is saying, I mean, what are you thinking? I'm not going to be fooled by your religious duties. I see what you're doing here. Your fasting's not for me. Your religious commitment's not for me. It is for yourself, and it doesn't translate to anything at all. It should translate to love, but it doesn't. And again, it should make us reflect here today as Christians. What are we like? welcome each other, smile, be friendly when we see each other on Sunday. But then the next minute, it's the cold shoulder. It's the passive-aggressive. It's the, the slandering. It's the hating. It's the speaking harshly. What's the point? Why well, go to church? But what God desires is the sincerity of the heart. Look at verse 5. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? I mean, the kind of religion I want? Only a day for man to humble himself? Be good one day, a year, fast a day, a year? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? You see what God is saying there? Is true religion about just religious duties? Of course not. It is about a sincerity of heart, a heart that is clean and pure before God. But it's not just a vertical thing. It's not just us and God, us relating to God. Fast for God to see, please God, and that's good enough. Not at all. It must flow into the horizontal. Our relationship with God must flow to the people around us. Knowing the love of God must flow to love for others. Loving God means loving others. And so we cannot love God and say, I hate my brother. No. If I love God, I must love my brother and my sister and my neighbor. And so we see in verse 6 now. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Now reflect on those words for a moment. 
fasting connected to justice. Fasting is connected to caring for the oppressed. You see, it, it, it was the evangelicals, William Wilberforce, William Pitt, John Newton. It was their love for God that was expressed in their love for their fellow human being. The weak, the vulnerable, the poor, the slaves. Why did they love them? It was an expression of their love for God, and that is true religion. That is the religion that God desires. And of course, their love for God and love for their neighbor eventually led to the abolition of slavery. And that is what God wants. A sincerity of heart, which means a concern for justice, a concern for what is right, a concern for widows, for orphans, as James speaks of. And it's no wonder why, in the ancient world, it was really only after the rise of the first Christian emperor, the first Roman emperor, Christian, Constantine, in 315 AD. It was only after he took the reins of the empire that the state started to take an interest in the plight of the poor and the widows and the orphans and the prisoners and the sick. Before that, if you were poor, if you were on the bottom rungs of society, that was your fault. The gods were against you. But with the rise of Christianity, that started to turn around. You see, in the ancient world, they were terribly neglected. They were, they were discarded, really. But with Constantine, he provided against the inhumane maltreatment of prisoners before their trial, that they would be well cared for. He provided food and clothing, partly at his own expense, to poor parents so that to stop them from selling their own children. He protected the poor against extortion of judges and tax collectors and oppressors. You see, it was the private, sincere love of Christians for God and fellow human beings that took the lead in justice in our history. It was the work of Christians, and then the state followed. You see, that's true religion. That's the type of fasting, the type of religious activity that God is pleased with. And in the Bible, God himself identifies with the poor and weak and vulnerable. And that's why in Psalm, Psalm 68, God says, I am a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. God is concerned for those at the bottom of society because they too are made in the image of God. And so now we look at verse 7. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? I mean, where do we hear that language? Jesus picks up on that language, doesn't he? In Matthew 25, in our first reading, the way Christians view the poor is the way Christians view God. The way Christians treat the poor is the way Christians treat God. I mean, in Matthew 25, what do we read? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And so what does God want? 
God does not want a fake, fraud Christian. God wants a sincerity of heart. Not appearance, but of substance. Not of show, but of heart. Not of lip service, but of love. And so God exposes superficial religion. God expects a sincerity of heart. And now finally, God blesses wholehearted reverence. You see, God sees the life of the righteous. God sees it. And God blesses the life of the righteous. And so in our final verses, we see here a cascading flow of blessings that comes from God. The first one we see here, God will be present. God will be near, not far and distant where we can't find him. Look at verse 9. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. We read elsewhere, God listens to the prayers of the righteous. God sees what our heart is like. We cannot hide from him. God sees if our heart is wholehearted and reverent and he will bless it. God will be present. Second, we see God will guide and strengthen and nourish. I mean, if that is true, if the God of the universe is for me in that way, what do I have to fear in life? Look at verse 11. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring where waters never, fa never fail. I mean, if you reflect on those words, what God will do, guide, strengthen and nourish. It's why quite often I, I hear comments, especially from the elderly amongst us. I, I hear this comment and it's extremely encouraging. Extremely encouraging, that is, I cannot understand how anyone can live their life without God. I've heard it multiple times. Even this morning I heard a hint of that. Last week I heard it a half dozen times. How can anyone live without God? I cannot understand how that is possible. It's so true, isn't it? God is the one who guides us when we're lost. God is the one who strengthens us when we're weak. God is the one who nourishes when I'm discouraged, when I'm feeling hopeless, when I'm feeling flat. How can anyone live without this God? And finally, another blessing. God will grant a joy everlasting. And here we see a picture of one who takes his religion seriously, who takes his faith seriously and is genuine about it. It's not for show, not for performance, not mere appearances. Look at verse 13. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath, and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honourable, and if you honour it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, what will happen? Well, that's authentic religion. That's genuine faith. That's wholehearted Christianity. And it always brings joy in the Lord. You see verse 14, our final verse. Then you'll find your joy in the Lord, and I'll cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
You see, it's a joy that is hopeful, that is a looking forward to all the fulfillment of all the wonderful promises of God. It's looking towards the consummated kingdom of God. And so God exposes superficial religion. God sees our hearts. God expects a sincerity of heart. That's what he wants from us. And God blesses wholehearted reverence. And so in light of what God has said, my question again, what are we like? What are we like before God? Any hypocrisy in us? Are we two-faced? Do we think we can fool God by just coming to church, doing Christian activities, being committed to Christian things? You see, we have to understand how horrible and terrible that is for any Christian to be living a life of hypocrisy, being two-faced. It's bad for anyone to be a hypocrite, but especially so for the Christian. Why? Well, it is because of what Jesus has already done for us. You see, in the world, before God, from God's perspective, we're the poor, we're the weak, we're the vulnerable, we're the hopeless, we're completely hopeless without God. But what did God do in Jesus? He came down from heaven to earth for us. He came to identify with us in our weakness, in our poverty, in our vulnerabilities. He became poor so that we might experience the riches of the mercy of God. He became weak so that we might experience the power of God who raises the dead, who lifts us up from the Mari pits. He became vulnerable, arrested by hands who had no right to touch the Son of God. He was beaten, flogged, crucified, buried, so that we might have eternal life. He came, identified with us, so that we can get what he had. And so my question again, in light of what God has done for us in Jesus, what are we really like? And how do I respond? How do I express my gratitude towards God? Just lip service? That's abysmal. That's horrible. Just mere appearances before men and women? I mean, that's deceitful. And what would God say? Well, God would say the same thing in verse 1. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and sin. And so, what are we really like? When you observe my family life, when you see me here at home, you'd hope that I'll be the same with my wife and my kids at home as well. When we see each other's marriages, how, how you relate to your parents, to your kids, to your friends, how we speak, how we care, how we try to build one another up each week at church, we all hope it's exactly the same at home. But of course, more than that, in this passage, there is a concern not just for 
being a hypocrite. We must not be. But there is a concern here for justice, justice in the world. Those who love God are those who should be champions of justice in our world, to speak out for those who can't speak for themselves, to care for those who can't care for themselves, and to have an interest in the poor. I mean, that's convicting, isn't it? Yeah, just like the prayer before, well, we're not meant to be just hearers of the word, we are to be doers of the word. Just the other week when I was reflecting on this passage, preparing this sermon, reading commentaries, I was in the car park, in the car, Yvonne was doing, she was doing the groceries, she went, did her thing. And I often would take those opportunities. I just stay in a car, I'll do my reading, read my commentaries, prepare my sermon. And so this time last week, I was in the car park, and while I was there reading away, trying to concentrate, trying to think, trying to meditate, a bunch of teenagers, they were wandering around in the car park, and they weren't looking like they're doing anything innocent. They were school-aged, they should have been in school, I thought. But then one of them knocked on my car window and then asked for some money for lunch. Now, what did I do? I mean, I was reading this passage. I was reading a commentary on this passage. <laughs> you should be at school. You don't look poor. What are you kids doing around in this car park? You shouldn't be here and stop disturbing me. I'm thinking about caring for the poor. <laughs> now, of course, I didn't say that. I did think it. But what did I do? Well, without even thinking, fobbed him off. Sorry, can't help you. Can't help you. Now, of course, I wouldn't always advise that giving money is the best way to care for those in need. I tried to justify it. He wasn't really poor. He looked like he was dressed okay. But what it did for me was a lesson from God in convicting my heart. And it really unsettled me that day. Because that night I stayed up a bit late and Yvonne saw that I was a a bit troubled, a bit unsettled, and so I shared with her that experience that day. And upon, upon reflection, I thought, I could have been different. I should have been different. This is not the way for a disciple of Jesus to believe, uh, to behave. This is not the way for one who's experienced the love of Jesus to behave. I should have been different, I was expressing to Yvonne. I could have maybe not give money, that's, that's probably unwise. Could have just taken him to Macca's, let me buy you a meal. Whether he was poor or not, do something that was different, that expresses our love for God in loving others. You see, it was a, a really good moment, a teaching moment from God to me. What is my heart like? And so next time, I will not just fob anyone off. I'll reflect, I'll consider what can I do because I love the Lord. Of course, I've repented of that and praise God for his grace. Praise the Lord Jesus for his grace. But then my question again, what are we really like? Or what do we want to be? Well, obviously not two-faced. If a brother or sister is in need and they need to stay somewhere for a few days would you be the first to volunteer if someone is really in need would you be the one who would volunteer to help to provide you walk past the streets of Melbourne and you see the homeless what can Christians do that is different that is distinct 
that shows that we love the Lord. And if God has given you gifts and skills where you can make a difference for society, where you can be a champion for justice, one who would care for the less fortunate, would you use it? I find it so encouraging to see the works of Christians in our past, the works of Christians who did so much for society because they were not hypocrites. They loved the Lord and their love flowed to loving their neighbours. Thomas Holt, a Christian man in the 1800s, believed that God had given him opportunities for economic advancement. He co-founded what is still a big company today. He co-founded AMP, you know, that insurance company, the Australian Mutual Providence Society. And he co-founded that with other Christians to help widows and orphans and the elderly. I mean, his conviction to do that came from the gospel, came from his love for God because he knows how much God loves him. Or David Jones now, I do mean the David Jones, the department store. Welsh businessman, known for his scrupulous honesty. He would give money away. He would even bring his business to the point of bankruptcy because he was so generous. He wanted to be consistent, not just on, on Sundays, but on every day of the work, publicly, privately. And of course, there are stories amongst us as well, what some amongst us have done for those in need. As champions of justice, those who care for the poor. Last week, I heard a story. There's a small group of young adults amongst us who on some Saturdays, they would go out to the city as part of the Salt and Light mission. To do what? To provide food to the homeless and to proclaim Christ. Heard a story of that just last week. And so my question again for us, what are we really like before God? What do we want to be? Of course we want to be as God wants us to be, a heart that is sincere before him and others, a reverence for him that is wholehearted, so that this may be true for us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, when the church is absolutely different from the world, that is different in our integrity, in our honesty, in our generosity, in our love for God and our love for people, so different, never two-faced. When the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. Now, isn't that what we want for us as the church of Christ here? Well, my prayer and our prayer, hopefully, is that that may be so. Let's pray.